talk is about the three aspects of conceit that are a part of the last army armies of Mara, the eighth, ninth, and tenth. And I'll begin in a general way and then become more specific to each quality of conceit. And I'll just go into each quality right now and define them more specifically later. The eighth army is thinking highly of yourself or ingratitude. And the ninth are what happens to one if one gets attached to gain, reverence, or fame. And the tenth is self-exaltation or the disparaging of others. And there's a lot that can be said about these, so see how far I can go. And you might wonder how conceit relates to what is called Mara. How does conceit keep us from seeing clearly? How does it keep the perception of truth hidden? And there's a small quote by Don Juan that I like a lot that seems to answer this question. He says, as long as you feel that you are the most important thing in the world, you cannot appreciate the world around you. You are like a horse with blinders. All you see is yourself apart from everything else. And one thing that Upandita liked to say a lot, is to me anyway, <laughs> is that if you see the mind and body clearly, there's no possibility for conceit. (laughs) And there was another teacher that came through here long ago. His name was Tangpulu Sayadaw. He died this year. He was an amazing being. He spent 33 maybe more than that, maybe about 37 years in a cave. Um, He never laid down for 37 years. (laughs) When he came here, he made us take the bed out of the bedroom that he stayed in. (laughs) Maybe he was still tempted (laughs) after 33 years. Um, And when he came here, He advised me to keep a mind like water. He had a very simple form of teaching. And he kept saying, not like a rock, like water. And I found this to be very simple and very profound, especially since I love listening to streams. And I love that sound of water flowing. And I thought that was a delightful advice. And there's a quote from Ajahn Chah that talks about the rock quality of mind rather than the water quality. He says, the teaching that people least understand and which conflicts most with their own opinions is the teaching of letting go or working with an empty mind. When we conceive this in worldly terms, we become confused and think we can do anything we want. It can be interpreted in this way, but its real meaning is closer to this. It's as if we're carrying a heavy rock. After a while, we begin to feel its weight, but we don't know how to let it go. So we endure this heavy weight all the time. 
If someone tells us to throw it away, we say, if I throw it away, I won't have anything left. If told of all the benefits to be gained from throwing it away, we wouldn't believe them but would keep thinking, if I throw it away, I will have nothing. So we keep on carrying this heavy rock until we become so weak and exhausted that we drop it. Having dropped it, we suddenly experience the benefits of letting go. We feel lighter. Before we let go of the rock, we couldn't possibly know the benefits of letting go. So if someone tells us to let go, an unenlightened being wouldn't see the purpose of it. They would just blindly clutch at the rock and refuse to let go until it became so unbearably heavy that they had to let go. Then they would feel for themselves the lightness and relief and thus know the benefit of letting go. Later on, one may begin carrying heavy burdens again, but now they know the result and they can let go more easily. This understanding that it's useless to carry heavy rocks around and that letting go brings ease and lightness is an example of knowing ourselves. Our pride our sense of self that we depend on is the same as that heavy rock. Like that rock, if we think about letting go of self, if we think of letting go of conceit, we are afraid that without it there would be nothing left. But when we can finally let it go, we realize for ourselves the ease and comfort of not clinging. So Ajahn Chah defines pride is the I, the heavy rock. So keeping a mind like water is a kind of humility rather than conceit. And this takes courage that heroic effort you've heard so much about, the courage to let go and to see the difference between the rock and the water, the flowing lightness and ease of water. Lao Tzu says the reason why the river and the sea are able to be king of the hundred valleys is that they excel in taking the lower position. Water is such an amazing metaphor for humility. Always seeking the lowest places on its way to the sea. So keep a mind like water. So this eighth army has two aspects. The first is thinking highly of oneself. And often conceit is likely to arise in practice if one has an interesting experience. And the mind becomes bubbly and excited and enthusiastic. And the thought might come Are other yogis doing as well as I am? Or are they practicing as hard as I am? Or I bet the teachers haven't experienced this one. (laughs) It can lead to I'm better than everyone else or no one can compare with me. And this kind of thinking is based on comparison. I am better, I am great, I'm perfect, or I'm the best yogi here. This is 
the extreme. The other extreme is, I'm no good. <clears throat> I'm the worst yogi here. <laughs> I'm failing. I'm rotten. And you've probably experienced both extremes and all the varying tones and shades in between. I'm great and I'm rotten. And both of these are based on the rock. Since they're based on I, they're based on comparison and insecurity. And often, I think that when we see someone arrogant, we often forget that they're really afraid. That conceit is often a cover for fear, as much as I'm rotten is a cover for fear. Both of these are a defense of the I, of the fear. It's a cover of the fear. I'm great or I'm rotten covers this inner core of fear, which is inextricably linked with what we call I. And one is an inflation, and the other is a deflation. I used to have this saying on my wall, in college, it said, he who feels punctured must once have been a bubble. <laughs> How many times do we pop <laughs> over and over? And if one is believing either of these aspects of I'm great or I'm bad, it's really not seeing clearly the truth, that one's not seeing that both are false, that they're both a cover. And Don Juan has great things to say about self-importance. He says to Carlos, I already know that you think you are rotten. Now, in order to affect that doing, I'm going to recommend that you learn another doing. From now on, for a period of eight days, I want you to lie to yourself. Instead of telling yourself the truth, that you are ugly and rotten and inadequate, <laughs> you will tell yourself that you are the complete opposite, knowing that you are lying and that you are absolutely beyond hope. <laughs> <laughs> Carlos says, but what would be the point of lying like that? <laughs> it may hook you to another doing, and then you may realize that both doings are lies, unreal, and that to hinge yourself to either one is a waste of time because the only thing that is real is the being in you that is going to die. And to arrive at that being is the not doing of the self. It's the letting go of the I. And I've seen these two aspects of myself over the years agonizingly clearly. I have this hurt dog, the images of kind of like this dog that's been beaten and kind of slinks around the edges of walls with its tail down and its ears down. And it's very docile and passive and very sweet and nice all the time. And if she's around too much, there's something that builds up and builds up and builds up. And then all of a sudden, this raging queen comes out and she has lightning that comes out of her fingernails. <laughs> and it's taken me a long time to figure out that there is a middle way. <laughs> that there's something between the beaten dog and the raging queen. 
it's amazing to find her. <laughs> There's a bit of balance there. And it's, it's that range between having to be too nice, very nice, and very horrible. It's still that same inflation and deflation that goes on and on and on. And if we don't see it, we're victims of this I, this fear. Both of them come from fear. And the moment you see it clearly, the moment you see that I'm rotten, believing it is the problem, or the thought, I'm great, believing it is the problem. But sometimes I think most of us need to listen to I'm great for a while before we let it go. I think that's why Don Juan told Carlos to lie to himself for eight days, (laughs) just to get used to the other side. There's another aspect to this that might not seem so totally connected at the moment, but I'd like to read something from Thomas Merton that is interesting. He says, it's not that we go out into the world with the capacity to love others greatly. This too, we know in ourselves that our capacity for love is limited. And it has to be completed with the capacity to be loved, to accept love from others, to want to be loved by others, to admit our loneliness, and to live with our loneliness because everybody is lonely. And I think of this loneliness as this fear, this core. And until we acknowledge that, we can't find the balance. This other aspect of this eighth army of Mara is ingratitude. And I'd never heard this before until Upandita came, so I'm very grateful for this teaching. He called this a stiff and rigid mind being big-headed. And he said it was not being able to pay respects to anyone else. One forgets the good deeds others have done for us in the past, and one remains very ungrateful. And if you think of how many benefactors you've had since your birth, parents, teachers, and friends, And when you think how small a mind is that can't recognize the benevolence, the incredible benevolence that just brings us together here, the kindnesses that allow us to be here right now and to have lived through our lives. And so this inability to appreciate kindnesses often leads to even belittling the people who have been most kind to us. And in the teachings, in the Buddhist teachings, it said there's two types of rare and precious persons in the world. The first is a benefactor, one who is able to be benevolent, one who performs a kind action in order to help or assist someone for good reasons, having a wholesome motivation. And the the second kind of rare and precious person is one who is grateful one who is able to appreciate benevolence shown to them. And often it's not 
we're not able to show our appreciation. But sometimes this kind of grateful person will want an appropriate time to appear so that one can repay the benefactor, whoever that might be. So you can think of, um, rather than just think of conceit, to think of its opposite in terms of gratitude and appreciation. It's very powerful. Two types of rare and precious persons in this world. And Upandita gave a simile from the scriptures about this. If a traveler is on a journey, and in the course of his long and arduous journey, he comes across a very shady tree by the side of the road, and he is very happy to find the shade where he can take very well-deserved rest. He goes to the root of the tree, lays himself down, and has a nice nap. Ah. And if such a person, after making use of this facility of shade, were to cut down its branches, or even to break off leaves, and then continue on his journey, such a person is indeed an an ingrateful one. It's a person who does not understand or appreciate the benevolence that a friend has bestowed upon him, shown him. And I like the simile because it leads into another aspect of gratitude that I think is really important, which is acknowledging the benevolence of nature, the gratitude that we owe all the beings who give their life so that we may live. And so this includes seen and unseen beings. It includes the tree beings and the insect beings and the flowers and the birds and whales, fish, reptiles, snapping turtles, (laughs) wherever they may be. And there's this quote I came across recently that's so much fun. Sen Roshi says, There are so many pleasures in life. Cooking, eating, sleeping. (laughs) The big ones here at IMS. Cooking, (laughs) eating, sleeping. Every deed of everyday life is nothing else but this great matter. Realize this. So we extend tender care with a worshiping heart, even to such things as beasts and birds. But not only to beasts, not only to birds, but to insects too, okay? (laughs) Even to grass, to one blade of grass, even to dust, to one speck of dust. Sometimes I bow to the dust, to one speck of dust. Bowing to dust. There's a simplicity and a vitality in that that's very different from the rock, the rigid mind. When one lives close to the land, one can learn to see in a very alert and powerful way. And when I went to Botswana, I forget what summer and winter is at this point. It was winter there, but it was the summer. 
Um, and we went out for these jeep rides every day, all day. And it was three Americans and this man, the guide, a native person from Botswana. And I was always in the back seat with his, him. His name was Lapata. And the two Steves were up front with the cameras and the binoculars, and they were sort of driving the jeep. And um, <laughs> it was quite a funny scene. Uh, and Lapato was supposed to be the guide. So we were driving along, and us three Americans were always with our eyes strained and our heads looking around. and. We were always standing up and sitting down and looking, and it's very, it was a private reserve, and it wasn't easy to find animals. It took all, it was a very long, hard day in the Jeep. <laughs> and um, I started learning to watch Lapata rather than for animals, because he was so much better at it than I was. And he was fascinating, because here we would be looking and straining, and oh, it was so hard. And he'd be sitting there with his eyes. I thought he was asleep. He was so laid back, and his eyes were barely open. He'd be so relaxed, and all of a sudden he'd point. <laughs> and he wasn't even looking. And there'd be a zebra, you know, and we'd be going along, and then he'd be like, and I swear this guy was asleep. And he'd, then the whole day he'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> and the highlight of the week was he found a herd of giraffe and we had stopped to look at them and immediately one Steve asked him how many giraffe there were before we even had time to count and he said 17 so I immediately grabbed the binoculars and I looked and I found 13 and for a half an hour I'm not kidding, for half an hour I stood there with these binoculars looking and looking and I could only get 13. And then in about another 15 minutes the, the giraffe started walking, you know, ambling by and there were 17. And he knew there were 17 without looking. Um, I kept taking refuge in the fact that he was born there. <laughs> But he, he could see things in a way that we couldn't see. And his eyes were so powerful, it seemed because he could be aware of the minutest change or in, in his surroundings. And he didn't, he wasn't tense. I mean, <laughs> he was the most untense person I've ever seen. Um, and he seemed to be just ready. He seemed to be just empty of everything but readiness. And when something changed somehow, somehow, I don't know how he would perceive it, <laughs> he would point. And I could have dumped on myself for not being able to see clearly or feel like, oh, I can't do this. Um, but I could see that it would take a lot of practice to develop the ability to perceive in the way that he could, which is really being able to see without looking. And it, takes, it would take a lot of patience and practice. I tried, but <laughs> I didn't see anything. Um, and I find that this story is actually another metaphor for um, being able to see the true nature of existence because one needs to have that kind of readiness or awareness, empty of self, just being ready. And nature can be such a guide in learning how to be quiet and still, learning that stillness or readiness. 
Annie Dillard in A Pilgrim at Tinker Creek says, Nature is a very much a now you see it, now you don't affair. A fish flashes, then dissolves in the water before my eyes. Deer apparently ascend bodily into heaven. The brightest oriole fades into leaves. Their disappearances stun me into stillness and concentration. And another little poem. Sitting quietly, doing nothing, spring comes and the grass grows by itself. Just empty of everything but readiness. The Eighth Army, which I won't go into very much, is about gains, fame, and reverence. And if one has practiced for a while, one can overestimate oneself and one's understanding. And often at this point, one feels like sharing the Dhamma, sharing either from one's experiences in meditation or from any studying that one has done. And unfortunately, the mind can become very attached. One can teach too soon, or without guidance. And the difficult part of this mostly is that it can happen that a person might feel like they can stop practicing. And if one stops practicing and if a pride develops, again it prevents the person from seeing clearly and it keeps reinforcing the I. And this army of Mara also means gains received from students, respect or reverence received from students, or fame and renown. And again, if those things become something one's attached to and keeps reinforcing the I, it usually gets people in big trouble. And there's a lot to be said about, again, each of these armies, but there's not so much time. So I just wanted to read a little poem about fame by Antonio Machado, a poet. I never wanted fame, nor wanted to leave my poems behind in the memory of men. I love the subtle worlds, delicate, almost without weight, like soap bubbles. I enjoy seeing them take the color of sunlight and scarlet, float in the blue sky, then suddenly quiver and break. Tenth Army, last. This actually is the most lethal, supposedly, of all the armies. And it's defined as pride that can lead to the disparaging of other teachers or exalting one's own ideas, opinions, or philosophy and needing to put others ideas and opinions down. And I'm interpreting this to mean that one really needs to keep cultivating the ability to keep learning. And if a person feels finished, 
or becomes complacent, it is very dangerous and that's why this is the most lethal army of Mara. Because one stops growing and in some ways one dies when one stops growing. And one stops growing if one feels finished. And there's, there's a lot of security in feeling finished. But again, it's not the truth. And it actually prevents us from growing. And it's nice to feel like we know things. And children tend to be more open and honest about these things. They're not as defended. And I had a nephew who, when he was about, I think it was three or four years old, he was going through a stage where he would purposefully ask me a question. And then I'd answer it, and he'd say, I know. And then (laughs) he'd ask me something else, and I'd answer it, and he'd go, I know. (laughs) And then any time I'd say a thing to him, he'd just go, I know that. I know that. And it was like the snotty kind of, I know that. And it went on and on and on. And I didn't think he'd ever outgrow it, but he did. But some people don't seem to outgrow it. I know. And if one has a feeling that one has cut through craving at times, this can also lead to pride. And the Buddha compared a person who boasts of success in conquering craving or conquering desire to a person from whom, from whose flesh the doctor has removed a poison arrow the wound and the wound which the doctor has dressed. There seems to be no poison left behind. But such a person is not really out of danger. The doctor, therefore, tries to get the person to diet, to bathe and dress the wound, and avoid exposing it to wind and sun so that dirt won't get into it. And if such a person neglects to do what the doctor says, the wound will get infected again. And so with the one whose mind is set on the truth. The Buddha says there's always danger. Let a person not persuade themselves that the poison of self and its desire is ever wholly dissipated. Be ceaselessly mindful. And the thing that I really loved and appreciated about Upandita, and I've repeated this probably endless times, is that he emphasized the readiness. He didn't emphasize experiences. He emphasized having a strong mind. And that means that as long as you have a body and mind, you're going to have pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experiences. It's just what we inherit by taking birth. And because of that, one must be as awake and alert as possible. And so that one is really going for a mind that's ready for anything, not particular experiences. There was a teacher named Deepama who's come here a lot. She lives in Calcutta. And she probably has the most developed mind that I feel like I've ever been around. And the translators have never been very good, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, if you ask her a question, you often don't get an answer that seems very, you know, sometimes it will, but 
I found that the teaching was just to be around her. She has the most extraordinary vibe and the most extraordinary mind. And the thing that used to amaze me and also really inspire me is that any time I... She used to stay across the street. Um, and before that, when she stayed here in this building, any time that I would go see her when she wasn't eating or having an interview, she was either sitting or doing walking meditation. And even like when I'd go out for a walk in the afternoon, there would be this little old lady (laughs) out there doing walking meditation. And she was incredible. She's probably the most um, developed person, and she was the feeling the least finished, which is a amazing teaching. She'd do walking meditation any chance she got. She actually did walking more than she did sitting. There is one more thing I wanted to say about nature, because um, conceit is the opposite of gratitude or sacredness or mystery or respect. And um, there was a man named Aldo Leopold who studied biology for many years, and when he switched over from a philosophy of man over nature to feeling a part of a community of nature, when he made that switch, he said he began thinking like a mountain. And in some ways, respect for nature is respect for oneself. And to revere it is self-respecting. And Peter Matheson says, since man and nature, though they're not the same thing, they're not different. Plants and animals that must be taken are thanked with ceremony and respect and rocks are not moved carelessly from their own places. Every day blessings are offered to the sun, air, and wind of the four directions, to the water that brings life, the Mother Earth, and nothing is wasted. And this respectful awareness of the world around, of its warnings and its affirmations, brings a joyous humility, a joyous humility, a simplicity that is also respect for the great mystery or the great spirit. Chief Joseph said, the earth and myself are of one mind, learning to bow to dust. I wanted to read something (laughs) to keep the metaphor of the marathon going. (laughs) I won't dry it out any more than this one more time. So I'll read a thing about marathons and then um, I thought we could maybe do a little meta to the deer and the hunters at the end of the talk. This is from a newspaper article in the Honolulu Advertiser. It says, Zen and the avid runner. Be at peace with self and accept life's challenges. 
It's a bit of a long reading, so get comfortable. But it it really pushes this metaphor to the max. (laughs) And it seems to include all the armies of Mara, so it's a great finish. As a year-round runner and competitor for 30 years, not to mention five years of seasonal running and racing that preceded those 30 years. I have found it increasingly difficult to remain motivated. The flame that once burned brightly now often flickers. I still enjoy running and racing. The problem is putting in the 80 and 90 miles of intense training each week which I find necessary to compete at my best. Injuries, illnesses, and the inevitable slowing that comes with the years have dampened the spirit. Whereas I would once push beyond the barriers of discomfort and inconvenience that are encountered in logging so many miles each week, I now give in to them. A less intense 60 to 70 miles a week seems to be my limit But even that is difficult to maintain for more than a few months a year. But still there remains the urge to push through those barriers, to race, to run fast. Recently, I was expressing my frustrations to a visitor from Japan. He is a Zen priest. To his American friends, he is known as the Big Rock. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Apparently an English translation is part of his name. Ah, so you think you have to try very hard, Big Rock commented when I mentioned how difficult it was to train for competition. Perhaps this is a part of your problem. You must act without difficulty. You must run with ease. I asked Big Rock to explain what he meant. Effort, yes. Strain, no. The samurai who wields his sword with strain, even in practice, will find death before the time is right. The archer must learn in practice to release the arrow with ease if he is to find his target, which is meaningful. Although I had read several books on Zen and was able to grasp some of the subject, I could never reconcile the mastery of the martial arts so often associated with Zen with the Zen teaching of total humility and indifference to winning. How could a great samurai perfect his technique and excel as a warrior if he lacked the desire to win? What motivated him to put in endless hours of training? I pressed Big Rock for answers. Your understanding is correct. The person intent only on victory is doomed to defeat. It is the person who does not concern himself with winning who will emerge victorious. I pointed out that many great athletes are clearly driven by the desire to win, to be the best in their sport, and most have egos to match their salaries. (laughs) Ah, but you assume, Mike, they are victorious because they have been declared winners. The true warrior does not enter such an arena. He has no need for such materialistic gains or ego gratification. The type of person you mention may experience an external victory, but internally he or she continues to hunger. This hunger increases as the appetite for still greater fame and fortune mounts. He will never experience an internal victory, which is what the true warrior seeks. But this did not explain what motivates the samurai 
to train those endless hours. I asked Big Rock to further elaborate. Perhaps you have confused what it is the samurai is attempting to master. You seem to assume that the samurai is practicing long hours to master his technique as a warrior. This is not true. She is attempting to become master over herself. He or she knows that he cannot completely be victorious, but at the same time he knows that he must never cease the struggle. The true samurai does not train long hours to become stronger. He strives to become weaker. We have a saying in our religion that a tree that is unbending is easily broken. It is the hard and the strong who will fall, the soft and the weak will overcome. I asked Big Rock if that meant the old samurai warriors were weak men. That is so, he answered. They may have been strong of body, but the true samurai was weak internally. This word you might use is humble. Yes, that is the word. To be weak is to be humble. To be strong is to be proud. I questioned Big Rock as to what motivated the samurai to fight fiercely once they were actually in combat. What you must understand is that a true samurai would not willingly engage in combat as to do so is a sign of insecurity. If he found it necessary to defend himself, he would do so, but his attacker would not be a samurai, because only an insecure person would invite combat. Once engaged in combat, the samurai will not fear death, because he already considers himself dead. Therefore, he would not have his mind on dying. <laughs> At the very end of this, Big Rock says, you must continue to intensify your pace in the pursuit of utmost humility. If you remember one thing from this talk, I hope you remember bowing to dust. So let's sit for a few minutes and uh, silently send metta to the deer and the hunters. The moment is precious when you have a mind like water. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.